Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work, helping us to understand your word, to receive it with joy. We do not want to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we know that comes from the spirit as he speaks through his word. So we pray he would. We pray we would understand the author of Hebrews here is pressing on us to endure in faith in the long race of the Christian life, looking to Christ, eschewing sin, trusting you in suffering, and helping one another in the race. We pray that we would have those truths driven deep into our hearts and minds, that we would repent of our own error with regard to these things, and that we would walk with the Lord in obedience and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure most of you have seen, or at least watch the front end of a long race. Some of you may have even raced in a long race, whether it's something like the Tour de France you've watched. None of you have raced in that, I'm quite sure. But watched or seen a marathon where you see people running. If you see a marathon, you probably turned it off for a while and then came back out of sheer boredom. But you've seen it happen. Some of you may even run in a marathon or ridden on a long bike ride like that. And what you notice is that throughout the course of those kinds of races, you always see crowds of people in various places cheering. And throughout the course of the race, you see people who are handing out water or handing out various drinks or foods that are good resources as they keep running. And they're cheering and they're offering these supplies to, if you will, keep the racer moving through the whole course to help them finish the race. That's why they're doing what they're doing, to cheer them on to the end, to give them the resources they need to complete it. And many of these folks, in fact, most of them, enter the race with teammates so they can press each other through, help each other get to the end. The fact is, in a long, grueling race like that, your body begins to run out of energy. It begins to be beat down, severely weakened. And when that happens, your mind begins to weaken. And you begin to think, that finish line is just too far away. I might as well quit. So you want to give up. The finish seems impossibly far. And so you need constant encouragement and help. You need it. Not it's a luxury item. Not it might be helpful. You need it. If you start to become lazy, you need someone to tell you to get going again. If you start to become discouraged, you need someone to encourage you. If you become weak to the point that you don't have resources to continue on, you need someone to help you 
nearly carry you through a leg of the race. There's a reason that this kind of analogy is used for the Christian life. Running a race is often used as an analogy for the Christian life. We're in a race, a marathon really, a long, grueling, painful race. And the finish line seems impossibly far, particularly because the marathon doesn't begin with us in tremendous shape. It's not like prior to becoming a believer, you were training for the marathon of the Christian race, getting ready for it in shape, had your cardio taken care of, nice and flexible, knew what you were in for, ready to go with the team. That's not what happened. You became a Christian, and you were a fat, lazy couch potato, spiritually and morally, and suddenly you're in a race, and it's a marathon, and it's impossibly long. It's impossibly long. The spoils, I want you to hear this, the spoils do not go to the one who starts the race. The spoils go to the one who finishes the race. And the Christian life is a long and painful race. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is the Old Testament saints who endured in faith that we read about in Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. This is a race, the Christian race, in which we can become slothful, we can become distracted by sin, and thus we need to be rebuked. It's a race in which we can become discouraged, and thus we need to be encouraged. It's a race in which we become weak and lame, and thus we need help, maybe significant help, maybe the kind of help where someone comes and practically carries us along part of the race. We need the crowd of witnesses throughout Christian history, particularly those we read about in Scripture, to encourage us to be on the sidelines, if you will, with us. We need to keep looking to Christ as our reward and as our example. We need to remember that though the race is hard, the Father loves us. Christ has endured much worse for us, and the Spirit is using all this difficulty, all these struggles, all this pain to make us more like Christ, who is our great reward. We also need the body of Christ, the church, our fellow church members. I don't mean the invisible Christian church out there. I mean your fellow church members to help us finish the race. And it's really that element, that element, our need for the body of Christ to help us run that we're looking at today and next week. As a church, we have submitted. I want you to hear this, Sovereign Grace. As a church, we have submitted to God's command to run this race together. In one sense, membership in the church is voluntary. In another sense, membership in the church is actually submitting to the Lord's command. You are required to covenant as part of the Lord's church, local visible body. And we have covenanted together that this local church is the people that we're running with. You know who your team is in the race? Look around the room, there they are. Yes, as we run, we'll be tripped up, we'll be beaten down, 
we'll be discouraged and maybe become weak enough that we feel we can't carry on. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we're to run together the race set before us. I want you to hear this. I'm going to pound this this week and next week. We run together the race that is set before us. We run it together. The people in this room, the members of this church, they are your people. They are your family. You would not run forward in life and just leave your family behind. They are the body of which you are a part. You would not run forward in life and just leave certain body parts behind. For we know that when one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Thus we run the Christian race together. And Sovereign Grace, I can tell you that we probably need to hear that right now more than we've ever needed to hear that before. Why do I say that? Because we, the folks in this room I mean, have never been in a cultural moment as divided, individualistic, and socially isolated as this particular moment. And there are two commands in our text as how we run together. First command we find in verses 12 and 13, and the second command in verses 14 through 17. So the first command is make straight paths together. How do we run together? We make straight paths together. That's in verses 12 and 13. How do we run together? Second command, we pursue peace and holiness together. That's the second command. Now, after last week's overly long sermon, I decided to break this sermon in two parts. I did that this morning. If you're amening already, it's, it's, it's likely because you have little kids. I did need to break it in two parts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that second command, pursue peace and holiness together. I'm going to deal with that this morning, but we're going to come back to it and deal with these warnings that are attached in verses 15 through 17 next week. The reason being is that if you read verses 15 through 17, you'll notice it's not something I should just gloss over. Like the command, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does that mean? I can fail to obtain the grace? It's not something I just want to gloss and move on quickly. So We'll save some of that for next week. With that said, let's look at the first command regarding how we run together. We need to make straight paths together. So look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. These are all in the plurally speaking to the entire church. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. The therefore, at the beginning of verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands, the therefore connects us to the general argument that's already happening in chapter 12, this exhortation that's begun, telling us to run the race with endurance. That exhortation's begun, it's connecting us to that, and it's essentially saying this, as those who are enduring the Lord's discipline in this really long race, we're being commanded, or I'm commanding you, to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Our hands are drooping and our knees are weak because we're so beat down in this long race that we're beginning to give up. If you ever watch a racer, when their arms start to drop, like if you ever run, I don't know how long it is for you. For me, it's somewhere around the corner. Your hands start to drop, your knees start to feel weak. So because we're beat down and so we're beginning to give up, we see the finish line being so far off that we become discouraged and are tempted to just be lazy and we must be set straight. At the main verb there where it says, therefore lift your drooping hands and that word strengthen your weak knees, that's actually that word strengthen is the main verb. It, it's hard to notice that in the way we've translated it in English, 
but it's this word from which we get the word orthotics. When you're walking and your gait is not straight, the doctor will give you some kind of orthotic device to help you walk straight. The reason they do that, they correct your gait, is if they don't, your body wears down more quickly and you cease walking altogether. Well, we need to be set straight. We need to be healed, restored, strengthened, and we need to do this for ourselves and for the other members of the body. So how do we get set straight? How does that happen? How do we get strengthened? How do we get restored to our race? Look at verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet. There's your how-to. Make straight paths. You need to get set straight. You need to be strengthened. So how do you do it? You make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. This is literally interpreted make orthodox paths for your feet. Orthodox is, if you were to break it down, it's right worship. To make a straight path is to walk with the Lord according to his word. The language for strengthening your weak hands and knees comes from Isaiah 35. I don't know if you know that. It comes from Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, the people of Israel are in exile. They're in exile. They're under wicked kings. They're discouraged. And they were being told to set one another on a straight path. Set one another a straight path. Encourage one another. Listen to Isaiah 35.3. You'll hear the language. Isaiah 35.3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. You hear where author's getting that? Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Now, how were they told to do that for one another? Well, listen to Isaiah 35.4. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Notice that. If you have weak hands and weak knees, what are you going to do? You're going to say to those who have an anxious heart. Here is God's people, the church, seeing that others in the church, they're starting to let their hands drop. Their knees are getting weak. They're starting to be discouraged in the race. So they're speaking to them. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Now here's what they say. Be strong. Fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He will come and save you. The people of God were to remind one another of the good news. God will judge and God will save. So trust him. To make straight paths and to restore what's been made lame is to point one another to God's word, to God's law, to God's promises. We're to diligently stay on the orthodox path. We're to stay on the path of right worship and sound doctrine. This means we're to avoid the path of false doctrine or alternative gospels or unbiblical ethics. We're to have a biblical understanding of law and gospel and we're to set straight paths in accordance with that. We're to diligently encourage one another in the word for our mutual upbuilding. See, here's the goal. We want to walk with God as Enoch did. We want to walk with God as Abraham did. We want to walk with God as the Old Testament saints that we read about in Hebrews 11 did ultimately most supremely we want to walk with god as jesus did we want to steadfastly avoid walking in the counsel of the wicked for blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers for his delight is in the law of the lord and on his the lord's law he meditates day and night. And we're being commanded to help one another in this. 
We must encourage one another in this. We must. But what do we do when one of our brothers or sisters becomes weakened and stumbles over their sin? See the sin that so easily entangles? If you notice the race language, when it entangles you, it trips you up. So what do we do when one of our brothers or sisters in Christ is weakened and stumbles over their sin in the Christian race? Well, in accordance with Matthew 18, we need to confront them for their sin. Now, I'm not saying, so please don't hear me. I'll clarify this more next week. Just in case you go out and commit malpractice this week and until then, just give you this little warning. I am not saying go confront everybody for every sin you see. Hey, love covers a multitude of sins. I am not encouraging that we become a church of spiritual nags. That's not the point. When you're confronting people for sin, you're talking about patterns. Not occasional sin, but patterns of sin. Patterns of sin for which they're not already repentant. You don't have to confront them if they're already confessing and repenting. And we confront them, and if they repent, then we're helping them set their feet back on straight paths. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You hear what we're supposed to do? When other brothers are, or sisters are being tripped up in sin, we gently restore them. We bear one another's burdens. We recognize that if, how about this, but by the grace of God, there go I. We need to encourage, restore, and heal the one who has fallen. Now this assumes that we've confronted their sins if they aren't already confessing and that they repent. But whether they struggle to believe the gospel or they struggle with particular infirmities that make faith and obedience a greater strain, we restore them gently. You understand, we'll talk about this in a moment, there are some folks in the body who are just weaker, constitutionally weaker, and always will be. God gives grace in greater measure to some than others. That's just a fact. Paul says it in Romans 12. We need to help those people. The goal is that those who are crippled by the difficulty of the race, that's what to be made lame, to be crippled by the difficulty of the race, and they're tripping over the obstacles of their sins or they're tripping over the obstacle of their personal infirmities that they may be helped up, set back on a straight path and continue running. We're to do that for ourselves and we're to do that for others. Keep your hand in Hebrews 13 and look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, now this is not just being spoken to pastors here. We urge you, brothers. In the Greek, we always use the masculine, even if we're including females. Because if you have a mixed crowd in Greek, they use masculine pronouns. That's how the language works. What they mean is brothers and sisters. They mean the church. That's who they're speaking to. Look what they say. And we urge you, brothers or brothers and sisters, church, admonish the idle or rebuke the lazy. Encourage the faint-hearted. These are the people who are discouraged. They're not lazy. They're not slothful. They're discouraged. Encourage them. The idle or the lazy, slothful people. Rebuke them. Now notice he says, and help the weak. These are the people who are so beat down, you basically have to pick them up and carry them. A word of encouragement ain't going to be enough. You're going to have to walk with them a long road to get them back on the straight path. Help the weak. 
Now notice this, be patient with them all. Even the lazy, slothful person you have to rebuke, you need to rebuke them in a patient way. Be patient with them all. Now, how do you know if a person is just being lazy, faint-hearted, or weak? That's why you need to know one another. And you need to know one another well, because that takes a lot of pastoral wisdom that's your even being called on as members of the body to administer. And you can't do that with people you don't know well. We need to help one another. We need to be patient with one another. But how do we grow in our love for sound doctrine and godly living in the midst of a world of temptations? We rigorously commit ourselves to the means of grace, to being in the word and prayer, to being with the saints to receive the sacraments, and to exhort one another. You cannot remain socially isolated from the body and be of any real help to the body. We run this race together. We need to remain on the straight path, and we need to help others do the same. Now, there's a second command here as to how we run the race together. Look at verses 14 through 17. I am just going to read verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Note the command. We're to pursue peace and holiness together. We're to strive. That word strive can also be translated pursue or press on toward. Actually, I think more helpfully in Hebrews 12, it can be translated, it's entirely appropriate to translate it, run after, run toward this. So what are we running toward? What are we pursuing? What are we striving for? Well, there are two parts of the command. We're striving for, first, peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. And second, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we're striving for or running after peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're to love our neighbors, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to strive for this kind of peace. We're commanded to pursue it, to run after it. Now, notice the activity in that command. You're not told, wait around for peace with others. You're not told, sit back and hope that holiness sort of is thrust upon you somehow. Run after it. We're to pursue peace. But let me ask you this. How do we pursue peace? Maybe I should ask this first. With whom do we pursue peace? And how do we strive for that peace? With whom do we pursue it and how do we strive for it? Let's look at a couple of passages. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I want to say first, we pursue peace with other church members. Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse 1. Pursuing peace with other members of the body. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul speaking, he's in prison, that's not just metaphorical, right? He's in prison. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, you've been called to gospel grace, to walk with Christ, to dwell with God. What's walking in a manner worthy of that? You ready? Here's the worthy manner. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You notice the difficulty of all that? Humility, putting another person above myself, considering another's needs greater than my own. We were told that clearly in Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. Gentleness, coming alongside. This does not mean not rebuking or doing the hard thing, but it means not doing it harshly, but gently, kindly, with patience. That means you're... This is going to be a long road. 
It's a hard road. Bearing with one another in love. We're to love one another, but notice those modifiers, bearing with one another in love. Can you imagine my anniversary, I tell my wife, it's coming up in December, it'll be 27 years. These 27 years I've been bearing with you in love. She would not be particularly appreciative of that. Why? Because we all know what that language means. It means these 27 years have been really hard, but I've stuck it out. But guys, notice the language of the Christian church and our care for one another. We're patient, humble, gentle, bearing with one another in love. Not, as soon as these people make you uncomfortable, go find some people who don't make you uncomfortable. As soon as they hurt your feelings or have offended you in some way, go find some people who don't do that. As soon as they become hard for you in some way, go find some folks who don't. That's just living for yourself. Notice the last modifier there was three, eager to maintain or directly translated defend. Eager to defend the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You're actually supposed to be actively defending the peace of the church. That means when you hear gossip and slander, you need to put that down right then and there. Cut it off. You're eager to defend the unity of the body of Christ. Second, not only peace with other members, but how about peace with biblical authority, with the authorities God has put over you. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 again. We were just in that passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. That labor is They're basically working to the point of exhaustion. Who labor among you and are over you. By over you, it's they're leading, they're out front. The literal translation of the Greek is they stand in front of you. They're over you in the Lord and admonish you. They rebuke you, they encourage you, etc. And to esteem them very highly or to esteem them most supremely, super abundantly. We could translate it in love. I know it's a little weird to stand in front of you and say, you should esteem me super abundantly in love, like most supremely. I'm not saying it, though. Paul is saying it. Obey him. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Notice it doesn't say because you just love their personalities. Because of their work, and then notice what comes out as a result of that. Be at peace among yourselves. See, if you don't do this toward your biblical authorities, you won't have peace in the church. If you don't do this, Ephesians 4, toward the members, you won't have peace in the church. You won't. Finally, you're not supposed to pursue peace in the church, but also with the unbelieving world. Try to move quickly. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. So this isn't just toward fellow members or leaders, but toward unbelievers. Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Notice the language. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I hope you're applying this to your elected politicians. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Even on social media, that's still a sin. Cursing is not challenging or disagreeing. Cursing is disparaging and wanting bad things for them. You guys follow the distinction there? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Someone gives you evil, then give thought toward how you give them honor. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then he goes, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, 
says the Lord. So you have peace with all through, frankly, trusting the Lord for justice, if you pick that up. You're trusting the Lord to be just. You're entrusting yourself like Christ did to him who judges justly. And then you're blessing your neighbor, even those who are your enemies. You're seeking their good. You're, as far as depends on you, being at peace with all men. It's what we're called to. But we cannot separate the command in Hebrews 12 and verse 14 to strive for peace with everyone. We can't separate that command from the pursuit of the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Those two commands are actually necessarily tied together. If peace with everyone is the horizontal concern, then holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, is the vertical concern. We need to pursue both together. In fact, they're necessarily needing to be pursued together. Peace with man, true enduring peace, and holiness to see the Lord are both found in the gospel of God's grace alone. In other words, Christ is our peace, and Christ is our sanctification, or a holiness. This holiness is something we are running after. We're striving for, running after, not only peace with everyone, but we're running after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's what we want. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord is the prize. To have the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, catch this, is to have Christ. It's to have him. The burden of Hebrews, the entire letter, is to tell you that this holiness without which no one shall see the Lord cannot be gained by us. We can't enter God's holy presence. We can't ever see him. We're sinners. We're unrighteous. We're unclean. We are not holy. Thus, Christ, the sanctifier, the holy one, came to sanctify us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. For he, that is Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. It's a bad translation, I think, in the ESV. It's literally are all of one. And the NASB picks up the general understanding of it better as you follow through the text context here. Is really are all of one Father. For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's the church, are all of one Father. Christ has sanctified us. He is our sanctification. The standard for seeing God is complete and perfect holiness. It's sanctification. It's consecration. And Christ is that for us. He is our sanctification and our holiness. Christ has sanctified us through the offering of his body on the cross once for all time. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. I just want you to see that I'm not making this up. It's right here in the text. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. And by that will, by the way, by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified. You have been sanctified. You have it. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ has perfected those of us he has sanctified. He's done so by a single offering. Look at verse 14 of chapter 10. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and probably better translated, those who have been sanctified. See, Christ has ascended to the throne of heaven, and he carries us there with him. So in Christ, by our union with Christ through faith, we have the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So that through him, we can draw near to God. 
Look at Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies, better translated, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, you have been sanctified by Christ. You have been washed clean, consecrated, made holy, so you may see God. Draw near to him. And this faith in Christ, which gives us access to God, is a gift of grace. It's a gift of faith that endures. It's a gift, if you will, of enduring faith. We look to Christ and we cling to him and we keep on leaning upon him and resting upon him. This really is a command when he says to strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. It's really a command to continue to look to Christ and forsake your sin. It's what it is. It's almost a repeat of verse 2, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And verse 1, casting off the sin that so easily entangles. You're holy in Christ. And if that's true, then why does he command us to strive for it? Well, if it's not being worked out in you, that holiness that you have in Christ, then you have false faith. And this is where the warnings come in, in verses 15 through 17, which I'll deal with next week. So I'm going to leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger on that. For now, I want to say this. We need to beware of temporary faith. That's what he's saying. We need to beware of temporary faith or false faith or faith that appears to be running the race but really was always just a false start. So how do we do this? Well, we're going to look at that more next week. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to remember, we do it together. We do this together. We cannot run this race. I want you to hear this, please. This is what concerns me so deeply about a situation for the first time in the history of the church in which people stay away from the gathering for almost a year now. I'm going to tell you, in the first century when the commands were given to gather together, they had way worse diseases than we're dealing with now. Throughout the history of the church, there's never been a time, and we've faced the bubonic plague more than once, and there's never been a time which the church ceased gathering for over a year, ever. And if we're not going to gather, we are not going to run the race together. And if we don't run the race together, we are not going to finish. We're not. It's necessary that we're together. We cannot finish the race by ourselves. We need one another. That's where we're commanded to strive together. Sovereign grace, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet or gather together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of judgment is coming. The finish line is nearer now than it was when this letter was written. We need to run with endurance, and we need one another to do it. By God's grace, we will. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for the salvation that we know in Christ, the hope that we have in him, the fact that it is our privilege together to draw near to you through the Holy One, your Son, the one in whom we've been made holy by the working of the Lord who is the Spirit.
we are thankful that we've been united to him, to our head, our Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. We pray that we would grow up into him, mature into him more and more, every day, more in the image of Christ, with ever-increasing glory. We pray that by your grace, we would continue to run this race, that we would take seriously that there is no greater prize than Christ, and that we would understand that you saved us and called us into this body to help one another run this race together so that we might finish and so receive the prize. In Jesus' name, amen.